This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Dance Me Beautiful. And my author who joins me from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is Deborah Graham. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is an interesting uh, cover. You have a very vibrant-looking individual that is dancing suspended in air. And, of course, your photo on the back as well. Tell me a little of the the title. Dance Be Beautiful is a a catchy phrase, but what is the significance of that title? The significance is that that ended up being what my journey through dance was, that I had started taking ballroom dance lessons at a time in my life when I didn't feel beautiful at all. And I think it's sort of that inside out, outside in thing. So from the inside out, I didn't feel beautiful, which meant that also from the outside in, I didn't see myself as particularly beautiful. And throughout the course of learning to ballroom dance and the journey that it took me on, I ended up uh, sort of leaping into the air like the lovely woman on the uh, on the cover and starting to um, feel beautiful both on the inside and the out. So really, I felt like dance was my teacher in that. Were you an individual? I, I, I describe myself as a, a uh, an, an incredible dancer that uh, cannot keep rhythm with anybody else. <laughs> uh, did you fall in that category, or were you someone that had that fluid moment, uh, fluid movement anyway, and just kind of uh, fell into it quickly? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> There was nothing fluid and beautiful at the beginning. It was choppy and awkward, and I stepped on my dance teacher's toes, which was bad enough, but then I also stepped on my own toes, which one wouldn't think was possible, but many a time I ended up stepping on my own foot and tripping, and so it was lots of uh, awkward, stumbling, very ungraceful beginnings. What kept you motivated to continue with the uh, torturous process of learning to dance? I think right from the beginning, there was something deep inside of me that knew this is what I needed. And so as I would leave frustrated or discouraged or embarrassed at how uh, awkward I felt and looked and experienced the dance, there was some part of me that must have kept rising up saying, you know, go back, you need this. There's, uh, there were sort of breadcrumbs along the way that this was my path. This is not a an extensive read, a, a 60 pages. How long did it take, Deborah, to, to put your thoughts and your emotions on paper and describe the, the journey? It was actually something that took me a long time because I wrote it contemporaneously with my journey. So mm. this began as my personal journal and journaling the sort of challenges and frustrations and breakthroughs I was having along the way. So over the course of, you know, sort of a year and a half to two years, I was journaling my journey, and it sort of then came together as a piece from beginning to end that many, many years later I decided to share with the world. 
What of the events in your history, in addition to the divorce, which is difficult for anybody to to endure, uh, motivated you to continue on this journey and and, uh, discover things about yourself that perhaps you wanted to discover or needed to discover? You know, I I think I had lived a very um, blessed and easy life, to be honest, up until my divorce. And that was sort of the rug being pulled out from beneath me and me facing the challenges and complexities of a grief process and everything I thought was sort of real and my life plan and everything kind of came tumbling down. And so it was a real bringing me to my knees moment. And that combined with the work that I was doing as a family lawyer, working with other people going through separation and divorce, and my belief was emerging that we do get second chances and we do get opportunities for new beginnings. And how was I going to forge out a second chance or a new beginning for me when it didn't feel possible? So intellectually, I knew it was possible. And I'd seen many of my clients, you know, sort of move through the grief process and move on to a better platform, but I didn't feel it. Are you still involved with horses? Uh, you have a background of uh, horse and rider. That was an allergy that you, you also included in your book. Yeah, I've always had a love of horses and spent years riding every day. And I don't have horses in my life now, other than my uh, my niece. I was just up at her barn yesterday watching her ride, and she's now the rider in the family. So I'm connected to horses through her, but don't have horses in my life on a day-to-day basis. Share the story of Cindy Ishoy, the, uh, the, the rider, and uh, her yeah. journey. So Cindy is one of the riders that I really looked up to at that time, and she had a beautiful horse named Dynasty, and they were heading into the their first Olympics uh, for their dressage ride. And uh, their, when they went through the tunnel, there was just thundering, echoing, clapping sound from all of the audience. And she could feel Dynasty's heart pounding between her thighs in the saddle. And she knew that he was in the fight or flight moment. Mm. And as, a, as an animal who isn't a predator, who's always prey, the flight response in horses is really strong. And in that moment, when she squeezed her legs and asked him to go through his terror and his panic and her worst fear, the trust that he had in her to say, yes, I'll go into that arena of fear and overcome that was really a metaphor of power for me that many times I ended up having to, in my own internal struggle, overcome that same fear and panic like Dynasty did, and trust my dance teacher the way that Dynasty trusted Cindy. What uh, What is the reader going to take from this story besides just your personal tale of uh, you know, survival? I mean, there's more to it than this in this book. It's not just sharing personal experience. It's it's really, I think, the the life lessons of you know when you fall down and picking yourself up and what does that look like when we pick ourselves up and how do what does it actually look and feel like because it's a pretty isolated lonely journey when we're actually experiencing those dark days in our lives and I think Dance Me Beautiful is a little bit of company for that journey a little bit of a hey someone else gets what it's like to break through of our inner restraints and our 
the bounds we put on ourselves and who we think we can be or should be in that kind of struggle to truly become our authentic selves. And I think for all of us, our authentic selves are far more joyful and compassionate and self-loving and loving to the world than than we start out being. And so I hope that it's some company and a little bit of a couple of guideposts along the way for others who might be experiencing dark days. Your book is uh, is not just a book for uh, young ladies or uh, females to read. I, although this is a, a beautiful book that has that appearance on the outside, would you describe this as a, an, an every person book to read? So my answer is yes, but kind of surprisingly, because I think I did think of it as a book that women would resonate with more than men. And uh, at my book launch party, I had uh, some of my colleagues come, and these are these are people who have guys who have been lawyers for a long time, and. I would say to them, well, here, you know, take the book home to your wife, but you're probably not going to want to read it. And uh, the very next day, one of my colleagues sent me an email saying, you know, you were so wrong. I read that book as soon as I got home, and I couldn't put it down and read it all in one sitting, and I can't imagine anyone getting more out of it than me. So from now on, he made me promise never to say it was a book for women. And I had a a friend of mine whose, you know, 17-year-old son was going through a real challenge. He's a hockey player, and he was going through a real challenge of sort of going out on the rink and not feeling like he put his best in the arena, that mm. he would keep leaving that arena feeling like he hadn't done what he really wanted to do or hadn't skated his heart out. And he ended up finding this book to be his inspiration to go out there and put his best forward and leave nothing left on the rink. And so there were these examples that kept coming up where, you know, young men or older men were finding the same kind of company and inspiration in this book that I had sort of erroneously thought was more of a woman's book. Well, having grown up in Canada, just uh, to disclose that, and uh, the uh, hockey uh, description you just you just gave, uh, leaving nothing on the rink, has uh, many, many meanings, uh, and I'm sure it inspired him to read your book. What are you hoping will happen with your with your uh, discourse that you have shared in Dance Me Beautiful? I'm hoping two things. I'm hoping, one, that some people who are feeling sad and dark and lonely will feel less alone, and two, that people will feel inspired to find their passion, you know, whether it's dance or hockey or whatever it is, that when you find something you're passionate about and you give yourself that gift of following it, it's crazy where it may take you, but it's always a good place. Absolutely. Describe in perhaps a paragraph or two your writing style in the book. Well, you know, how did you approach this? Uh, are there dance steps in here, which I don't think there are? Uh, how is this going to relate to the reader, and uh, why should they get a copy of it? So it's definitely not a how-to book on dance, and uh, it definitely reads as the you know the first-person memoir style. Uh, of writing, and I think it feels like having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with me and hearing my weekly or monthly chats about what I'm going through. So I feel like it's kind of like a cup of tea with a friend, and 
And so that's really what I'm hoping, that people feel some company and feel some inspiration. You've done a wonderful job in condensing down a very difficult time and uh, making a metaphor for life. The title of the book, again, is Dance Me Beautiful. My author, Deborah Graham, who's joined me from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Has your experience in writing the book challenged you to the point where you might want to share an additional book or some other thoughts down the road? It, it does. I, uh, I, am, uh, I am journaling my current uh, dance journey, so who knows what may come of that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, there's a number of chapters. They're very short. Uh, chapters titled like this, the title, Stirring Things Up, the competition, being a spectator. Uh, you have to believe it to see it. Now, that chapter got my attention. What does that uh, entail? Well, I think that there's always that, you know, saying about you have to see it to believe it. And what I was finding over and over again was that I actually had to believe in the possibility before that possibility could come true. And so I had to keep believing that I could break free of these kind of um, disempowering barriers that were holding me back from truly being all that I could be. I had to believe that before I could start to live it and experience it and express it in the world. Wonderful. Inspirational book, Dance Me Beautiful, author Deborah Graham. Deborah, my listeners will need to get a copy of this. How can they do so? Well, they can go to either the iUniverse website or it's also available on Amazon and any of the online booksellers have it both in um, in e-versions to put on your Kobo and those sorts of things and also for the hardcover. Excellent. And they can keep in touch with you or at least follow you on any future publications by maybe doing a search under your name. Deborah is D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M. Thank you for joining me today, and best of luck in the future. Please join us again if you, uh, if you produce another work of inspiration. We'd love to talk with you. Will do. Thanks so much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Erosion, and the author, Julie M., and Julie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Julie. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us, Julie. This is going to be a fascinating discussion about your book, Erosion. Let me read what you've written just to kind of set the stage for everyone. You say, Erosion is the story of a girl whose life is shaped by the choices made for her. 
as a teenager. As she comes of age, these choices lead her on an unpredictable journey of loss, regret, romance, and self-discovery. Uh-huh. Self-discovery, I'm sure, uh, in this in this story, especially since she had such a domineering father. Yes. Uh, her father is quite a character. He's uh, very almost militant in his control over her over his daughter and um he just manipulates her far more than you can possibly imagine well before we get into more details about the story uh tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about okay well i am a currently a teacher in edmonton alberta with edmonton catholic i teach elementary music to grades one to six so six-year-olds to about 12 and uh, I've been teaching for, oh gosh, 21-something years. And uh, this book um, happened at a time in my life where um, the work life was great, but my own personal life was kind of falling to pieces. I have two children, and at the time I was married, and it was not a very happy marriage. And um, Kate just kind of came to me. She was this, almost like a, not a dream, but just this presence in my life who wouldn't leave me alone. And so I just started writing about her, and and I started writing in uh, about January 2008. And by the time summer rolled around of that year, I had um, just reams of an outline, and I just started writing. And two and a bit years later, I had what I thought was a pretty good book, as good a book as, as anything I've ever read. And and then it sat for a year. And, um, and I don't know, I just just submitted it. What the heck? And uh, here we are. I think we would all agree with your premise about the influence of our past uh, on mm-hmm. our present and future lives. It is real, and of course, Kate is a great example of it. Yes. Um, you know, Kate is in some ways a lot like me. Her her past is reflective of her her new thinking and her, you know, her new life towards the end of the book. And I think we can all have, we all have moments of, during our, our history, whether it's our teenage years or young, our young adulthood and into our, our, uh, our life, where um, we're not quite sure who we are. And the people that are involved around us kind of, not necessarily manipulate us, but guide us, not necessarily in the right ways. And that's true to ourselves. And I think Kate discovers this. We all do uh, discover this as we grow up. Does her mom just give way to Kate's father? Um, her mom is um, a very strong personality in her own right. Um, however, she dies when Kate is in her mid-teens, and so her influence is really just in, in memory, and her father certainly takes over. She's that quiet um, presence in the background whenever she was alive, but of course once she passes away, her presence... But Kate has Ginny. Yes, her savior. Really, Ginny is her her great aunt, so it's her father's aunt, and uh, he, her father ships um, Kate away every summer from the time she's five uh, up until she's a teenager. And um, Ginny really saved her by welcoming welcoming Kate into her home and loving her like her father never could, um, and it quite literally saved her life. It gives her something. Uh, that she can hold on to in her later years. Ginny's ripped from her as as a 17-year-old. Her father takes her away and doesn't allow her to see Ginny any, any longer. And 
it's that memory and that love of her aunt that saves Kate and gives her something to hold on to as she goes through the trauma of her life. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> now, do we get to know the reason why her dad struggled in this way so much that he had to control every aspect of Kate's life? Yes. Um, as Kate is uh, an adult, or as she becomes an adult, um, there's a situation in, in the book where she becomes pregnant with her first child, and it's it's not a wonderful situation as, as maternity should be. Um, it's got its own issues that the reader's just going to have to read about. But during that time, she becomes reflective, and I think all new mothers kind of do, and there's a moment that she's she's sitting in her rocking chair and she's contemplating this new baby that she's carrying and, and she thinks about her father who's recently passed away and and uh, during that time of his you know leading up to his passing um, he has the opportunity to kind of free himself of all his wrongs and apologize to his daughter and and he confesses to her why he's raised her how how he has and it's really a, a very poignant part of the story again I'm getting emotional just talking about it um, but it's 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 just a wonderful wonderful way for them to finally connect as a father and daughter really should and of course the theme really emphasizes the power of love yes we we see right at the beginning of the book Ginny's love for Kate even though Ginny's not her parent she has that role in Kate's life and so that is a very powerful pure pure love and we also see in the middle of the book where an Arthur her father's passing away how he really truly does love her but we also see that love that is tarnished and almost ugly because he's not a very good father to her and he's very cruel and mean in so many ways and he's manipulative and so we see the different facets of love whether right or wrong it's exposed and I think we all have those parts either in our lives or on the fringes of our life, and and so it's um, it's just a very powerful theme throughout the book. And you like to throw the reader curveballs. You're just when they I think do. they've figured it out, you surprise them. I do. It's very unpredictable, and that's I think what keeps the reader captivated. And I think it what it's what hooks them. Um, you know, I'm a new writer, and I didn't really know what I was doing, and so. Um, as I was rereading the final draft of it, it just, it was captivating to me. And there was parts where, you know, I'd almost forgotten about and, and, and was delighted when things changed. And it was, it, it's wonderful. Is this just for women? No, actually, I've had several men um, read this book in my life. And uh, I mean, of course, these are people that are familiar to me. But at the same time, having said that, they, they read it with, open eyes and um, we're, we're delighted with the book. It was um, not just for women. It appeals to men. There's some characters in there that are just wonderful. There's this Wayne who is he's just seedy and he's awful and he's he's a guy's character and I think not that men can relate to a guy like him because you don't want to be like Wayne but he's just, it's not all female stuff. It's just, it's a good book for everybody. So it's a book about second chances. Yes, it is. I've had many second chances in my life, and um, these characters have that opportunity to explore second chances as well. And again, it's being true to yourself and taking those second chances for you and not for someone else. And it also addresses alcohol abuse? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, 
there's there's characters in the book who are um, abusive, and they are abusive because of their exposure to alcohol and and to a lesser extent drugs. It's it's alluded to, but not the focus of it. It's mostly alcohol abuse, and and um, it's just it's an awful thing, and it does awful things to people. And you know, as bystanders you know, we're exposed to people who live that way and suffer the consequences of their behavior. And Kate is one of those people in the book who is on the receiving end of that um, abuse. And uh, it's it's hard to read sometimes, but it's, it's really part of life, unfortunately. Now, who is Terry? You call him pathetic. Terry is... Um, ends up being her husband in the book but Terry's a character who is the son of someone that Kate's father used to work with and he is he's kind of a sad character and he's pathetic in, in his own way but I you know I think some readers will feel um, kind of that he is pathetic and others will really sympathize with him because he's he's just this lost almost little boy that just kind of floats through life and doesn't have control and Arthur puts Kate in his way as a way of kind of helping him. He's the son of this old friend, and, and he thinks that Kate can help him, that they can actually help each other. And so the parents, you know, design this way of getting them together, and eventually, you know, Arthur in his control forces Kate and Terry uh, to... Uh, to be together and she ends up marrying him and and all of Terry's issues um, really uh, force force Kate to figure out who she is and what the kind of person she wants to be and in the end things don't really work but she's grown as a person by knowing Terry and and in her way loving him and through your examples, we, I'm sure, will relate to the fact that our actions have unforeseen consequences. Oh, absolutely. And as a teacher, I mean, I see that all the time. The kids, you know, will do things and they don't know what the consequences are. And, and so we live that every day from the time we're little. And Kate um, Kate is exposed to things that, you know, she she thinks will be fine and will work out, but then there's this character of Wayne, Terry's brother, that comes in and just does these things that she can't fathom how how things are going to settle and and end for her. And um, it's it's hard to imagine. And that gives the, the book this unpredictableness to it where you think you've got it figured out and then things happen and you don't know how what consequences are going to happen based on that. And they might be, you know, years later in your own life or in, in my case of the book, chapters later but um yeah it's the consequences are are interesting well before we find out the best way to get your book julie tell okay. us in closing a little bit about your philosophy your view of life you call it living consciously which is an overall message of the book it is um that's something I have honestly struggled with my entire life. I mean, I am nearing my 50s here, and I'm getting much better at it, but it's something I think we all struggle with. And, you know, I alluded earlier in the interview how, you know, my marriage wasn't great. Um, I do have two wonderful children and a good relationship with my ex-husband, but um, living consciously is something I struggled with as as a little person. All through my teenage years, which is the natural years to do that, but I kept struggling with this issue. And... Um, I think, you know, working through this book and, and living, kind of living through Kate and, and helping her work through the issues that she needed to as a character really helped me um, find my voice, find my strengths, 
um, my own personal conviction to come out of the end of my separation and divorce and, you know, being a single parent for a few years and, um, you know, get back involved in, in life. I've met a man and actually in the last, we got married on July 31st of this past summer and so I'm living consciously now and I'm enjoying every minute of it. What is the best way to get your book, Julie? Erosion. Erosion is available um, at our local uh, retailers in Canada. Um, we're trying to get it on the shelves, and of course, the more interest there is in the book, the more available, readily available it will be. Uh, you, if it's not currently at Chapters and in Indigo, it can be ordered through those uh, stores online. They can bring it in for you and. Uh, um, it's available as a, as a Kobo reader, e-reader, and of course you can go right to iUniverse and order it directly there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled A True Free Market. Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. Author Stephen Taft joins me from the New York City area in the United States of America. Welcome, sir, to the program. It's good to be here, Jay. Thank you. This is an important topic and certainly one that's on everyone's mind. If it's not the politics in the United States, it's uh, worldwide. People are concerned about finances. Some want to take from uh, the ones that have already made it and give it to the ones that haven't made it. What is the purpose of your book? Why did you decide to tackle such a difficult subject? I decided to tackle this subject because we don't seem to be able to get it right. Capitalism is a wonderful thing. It, it, it respects uh, human ambition, and uh, it respects the fact that there are differences among us in, in talent and ambition, but we don't seem to be able to do it in a way that, that makes many people happy. There's always a few that are thrilled, right? Uh, but half, half the country always seems to be upset for some reason. And I, I wrote this book because I have all the respect in the world for capitalism, even admiration for capitalism, and I just got frustrated that we can't do it better. And the book shows not only why we have the problems that we do, but also suggests ways to fix them. 
that are kind of out-of-the-box answers. They get away from the tax rate should be a little right. bit higher or the tax rate should be a little bit lower. Right, and, and you should penalize those who are making more money than those that are making less and those kinds of uh, questions and statements that get thrown around. You've, so- you've cited Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address where he basically said that the government is supposed to re- restrain men from injuring one another and leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement. So his concept or his his viewpoint was that men should get out there and work and and uh, prosper from their efforts. Is that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's Is okay. There a question to follow, or well, I just, just wanted to comment. On no, that? I just wanted you to comment on Thomas Jefferson and and how that that work ethic, that that concept, that uh, drive, that energy has been lost over the last century or so. Well, it's if it's been lost, it's been lost because. Uh, I think we've lost sight of what an economy is for. <laughs> and I, I, I realize that's a strange thing to say, but right. I mean, an economy is the rules by which we all get along. It, it enables uh, strangers to have, have interactions with each other and, and exhibit a, a modicum of trust between each other because there is a government behind the transaction. Correct. Uh, so, so in no way uh, would I advocate for eliminating uh, the government, but the government has to understand what it's supposed to do. Now, in Jefferson's quote, which is a great place to start talking about this, I think, I think the, the word that kind of led us astray is the harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to get the quote in front of me here. Sure, the, qu- the quote uh, talks about harm, and it says, uh, "Shall not take labor or mouth of labor the bread they just earned," right, and so on. And it so, talks about the harm. So, yes. So the harm can be defined in many different ways. Obviously, you know, harm. Uh, the obvious way is uh, if someone wants to take something from you by force, you know, with a gun or a club or something. That's a form of harm. Uh, but there's also uh, more subtle forms of harm. Uh, you know, if, if there's a chemical spill on your property that, that didn't, wasn't your own fault, mm-hmm. you know, that's a form of harm. If, if there is a, a contract that was misrepresented to you, that's a form of harm. You know, so, so you need government to accommodate these different forms of harm and try to prevent them or rectify them at least. And, you know, we are a very litigious society. Correct. And uh, I think that part of the government's growth has been because people want total safety and total protection in their lives. And it's just really not attainable, but we keep trying. What do you so think? We try to eliminate all these different harms. What do you think of the analogy of the government perhaps being a, 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 a an impartial referee, perhaps, on the sideline. Would that really be a better way of describing the ideal situation? Well, it's the government that makes the laws that we have to follow. Right. And the government can only be impartial if the laws themselves are impartial. So the laws can't be made to favor one company over another within an industry. And ideally, the laws can't be made to favor one industry over another. Makes sense. Uh, you know, the, so, so the, the impartiality that you talk about, Jay, has to be within the law itself, and then the government's actions are going to follow. So we need to really understand 
uh, what's happening in our economy. And that's what I try to get at in the book, that we have just have to write our laws on a deeper level and, and kind of take the petty politics I I would love to see that happen. Uh, Personal responsibility, personal restraint, I think, is something that's missing, and even corporate restraint in some instances. And uh, sometimes the laws, the the restrictions, the roadblocks that are set up by governmental agencies seem to impede the progress of a free society. I was uh, looking at your chapters. You have one called Free Land Ho. What is that chapter, Chapter 7? What does that refer to? Well, the idea there is that uh, to have a free market, there has to be free choice, not only within the market. I mean, you, don't, you have to be able to say no to any transaction, really, or it's not a free market. Mm-hmm. And to be a truly free market, it should be a choice to even participate in it or not. And that chapter, Free Land Ho, shows how that can be part of our freedom as well. How, how people can kind of opt out and still be responsible for their own livelihood, their own well-being, without depending on government or any sort of payments from other people in society to help support them. You have used the, the term liberty and justice through economics. Uh, flesh that out a little bit for my listeners. What does that mean in your way of thinking and uh, descriptions? Well, we have these rules, these laws in place that really have had the effect of causing a lot of problems in the economy. Uh, And I will uh, uh, illustrate those. Uh, But to answer your question, when when we structure the economy with laws so that we're spending so much effort to fix things all the time mm. and adjust things all the time, it, it takes away from our liberty and freedom, and it, and it, cre- it creates inefficiencies. Uh, and, and if people have uh, the freedom to uh, choose at every step of the way the kind of life they're going to have, instead of being born into some kind of dire circumstance... Uh, then uh, there has to be more freedom around. There's also, by the way, uh, that unleashes the entrepreneurial spirit that we all have. Instead of having it concentrated in the top few percent who have access to funds, that's where most entrepreneurship comes from right now. You know, we, we can free it up across all walks of life. That's true. You you have mentioned in, in some of your dialogue the term have or have nots. Uh, there is a television program that I've noticed on the air internationally that is titled The Haves and Haves Not, Have Nots. Uh, how do you address that uh, envy that's being perpetrated between people of, uh, of means and those who have, uh, I guess, survived the entrepreneurial effort or journey and those who are still struggling. What is the way that you can motivate them? Well, first of all, let me say I have not seen that show. I hadn't even heard of that show <laughs> until this conversation. Okay. So I'm not commenting on that show. That's fine. It's, uh, it's on the O but, Network. But, I will share that uh, that bit of, of detail for you. <laughs> but but the, the idea in a true free market is not about mitigating the results. It's not about... Uh, taking uh, from a billionaire and giving to a poor person. It's about creating a a true, fair playing field where there is an equal opportunity across the board 
and then results take care of themselves. I mean, if someone can become a billionaire from having had a fair start, more power to them. Wonderful. You know? And so we really should be focusing on creating a fair playing field instead of focusing on redistributing results. But the reason we have to do that is because of the laws we have in place. And some of those, we have to refocus. I mean, the the idea of whether the tax rate should be 38% or 32% or 24% isn't going to fix anything in the long run. We have to, we have to get away from the idea of of uh, that of of taxing income and capital and and moving on to other answers. What has been the the one chapter or the one idea that those who have read your book have gravitated towards and said, "Wow, that that really does make a lot of sense." Or is there more than one? I'm sure there are, but well, yeah, there are. There, the the book is very, um, if I can dare say this, it's it's fairly rich in uh, new ideas, some old ideas that aren't talked about much, but also new ideas, and uh, it has a tendency to uh, excite some people uh, in some ways, and those same people are kind of leery about other things. So it, it, the appeal is not to someone who thinks uh, in a conservative mind or, or with a liberal mind. It kind of ignores those classifications and, and speaks to ideas that just seem to work from the fundamentals of human nature. Uh, and I'm sure in this uh, talking that I did not answer your question. Oh, you're close enough, uh, though. That's that's all right. You have you have approached the book in in your writing style uh, almost as though it were a fictional novel in some ways. You have a conversation in your first chapter between two gentlemen, and I'm sure this was part of uh, perhaps observation, but also part of just life experience that you shared here. Uh, did you use this style throughout the book? Yes, the the conversation between these two old friends is the whole book, other than the uh, introduction and the closing chapter. Everything that's in between is the conversation between these two guys. The reason I took that approach is because uh, economics at its heart is not about formulas and percentages, it's about how laws affect people mm-hmm. and the choices that we can make. And so by keeping it on the level of the human being, and hopefully readers will like these guys, uh, or at least one of the two, <laughs> you know, the economics, I think, can be brought to a level where it should be operating instead of the level where it is operating in our current culture. And makes it very approachable as well. It's, it, it makes a very complex subject one that is more easily understood the way you've approached this. I think so. That was the intention. Uh, if I may, let me just talk about, uh, you know, I talked about getting away from tax rates. Correct. Uh, let me just uh, talk about why that's important. Because when we're taxing incomes, uh, for example, it causes problems. I mean, we look at it as a way to fix problems by adjusting the rate. But the, the reality is, is that taxing incomes causes problems. And I can explain that this way, about half of us in rough numbers uh, pay an income tax and half of us don't. Hmm. Everyone who pays the income tax is either getting a salary to give them a certain lifestyle uh, or they're producing goods uh, to give them a certain lifestyle. And right. sell, you know, they're selling those goods. So the fact of the matter is salaries have to work on an after-tax basis and prices of products 
have to work on an after-tax basis for the people who make them. But everybody is buying products, whether we're working or not. The poor and the retired are buying products in the same way that uh, the people who are wealthy and working are buying products. It's true. So, so, that, so the prices have the uh, tax liability for the people making that stuff built into the price. So what happens is uh, even the, the non-working people, the poor and the retired, end up paying some of the tax for the wealthy and the working. That's true. And it makes uh, the poor poorer and the rich richer than they otherwise would be. Mm. So, tough, so if we can get away cycle. from that, a lot of problems go away, too. Stephen, how long did it take you to, to create or finish this project? It took me about 20 years to wow. think about it and about four and a half years to write it. You've done a great job. I love the approach that it's a conversation between two older gentlemen in New York City at Central Park, and, and it just sets the uh, the atmosphere for a conversation about life and, and about this particular subject. A true free market, conversations on gaining liberty and justice through economics. My guest, Stephen Taft. Now, sir, where do we get copies of this book, and where can my listeners get in touch with you? Copies can be had uh, at barnesandnoble.com, uh, amazon.com, uh, Google Play, Apple Play. Uh, local bookstores will order it if you walk in there and ask for it. Uh, it's available as hardback, ebook, uh, and paperback. Do you have a website or do you have another project oh, yeah, in the web? Get in touch with me. Sure, absolutely. Uh, my, if you want to email me, uh, thank you. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, if you want to email me, it's Steve at a truefreemarket.com. Excellent. And, is there uh, and a pro- I'm happy to uh, talk, and I, I keep, uh, there's a True Free Market Facebook page. I blog uh, at a truefreemarket.com also, uh, and I'm totally uh, eager and open to uh, talking with people about this, because just as the book is a conversation, that's how any change happens, is with conversation. Everything starts as a conversation. Wonderfully said. Uh, whether it's, so that's what I want to help spark, is a new conversation. Thank you for sharing your ideas and for completing this project, A True Free Market. Is there another project in the future that you're working on now? Yes, there, there is another project. It'll, it'll be necessary if A True Free Market uh, takes off. But there's a morality behind economics, and, and uh, the next book will be about that. Fabulous. I look forward to visiting with you again, and thank you again for sharing your insight and your years of experience in the financial markets in this book, one that is conversational, easy to read. Readers, if you have any curiosity about the free market system and uh, how to perhaps get a hold of your own finances and and, uh, make your goals a reality, this book, again, would be one I would recommend. A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest, Stephen Taft. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Jay. Thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.